In 2008, I had a good, hardworking team, but I allowed internal rivalries to fester and didn't establish a clear chain of command until it was too late. Still, we came so close to winning, I vowed that this time we would do things differently. I was determined to have the best data, the most field organizers, the biggest fundraising network, and the deepest political relationships. I was thrilled that Beth Jones, a talented manager working at the White House, agreed to be campaign chief operating officer. To lead our organizing and outreach efforts, I turned to three political pros, Marlon Marshall, Bryn Craig, and Amanda Renteria. I also hired experienced organizers to run the key early states. In addition to Matt Paul in Iowa, there was Mike Lasich, who had helped reelect my friend, Senator Gene Shaheen in New Hampshire, and led my efforts to beat Trump there in November. Emmy Ruiz, who helped lead us to victory in the Nevada caucus before moving to Colorado for the general and helping us win there, too. And Clay Middleton, a longtime aide to Congressman Jim Clyburn, who helped us win a landslide victory in the South Carolina primary. To infuse the campaign with a spirit of innovation, we got advice from Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, and other top tech leaders, and hired engineers from Silicon Valley. Stephanie Hannon, an experienced engineer, became the first woman to serve as chief technology officer on a major presidential campaign. I hired one of President Obama's former aides, Teddy Goff, to handle all things digital, along with my longtime advisor, Katie Dowd, and Jenna Lonenstein from Emily's List. They had a tough job on their hands with a less-than-tech-savvy candidate, but I promised to be a good sport about every Facebook chat, tweet storm, and Snapchat interview they recommended. To make sure we built the most diverse team ever assembled by a presidential campaign, I brought in Bernard Coleman as the first-ever chief diversity officer, made sure women were half the staff, and hired hundreds of people of color, including for senior leadership roles. We put our headquarters in Brooklyn, and the office soon teemed with idealistic, sleep-deprived 20-somethings. It felt like a cross between a tech startup and a college dorm. I've been a part of a lot of campaigns going all the way back to 1968, and this was the most collegial and collaborative I've ever seen. So, how did it go? Well, we didn't win. But I can say with zero equivocation that my team made me enormously proud. They built a fantastic organization in the early states and helped me win the Iowa caucus despite tough demographics, as well as the Nevada caucus and the South Carolina primary. In the general election, they recruited 50,000 more volunteers than the 2012 Obama campaign did and contacted voters 5 million more times. My team absorbed one gut punch after another and never gave up, never turned on one another, and never stopped believing in our cause. That doesn't mean there weren't disagreements and debates over a wide range of questions. Of course there were. It was a campaign, for heaven's sake. But even on the night of our landslide defeat in the New Hampshire primary or during the worst days of the email controversy, nobody buckled. And have I mentioned that we went on to win the national popular vote by nearly three million? It was a terrific group of people. And I'm not just talking about the senior leadership. All the young men and women crowded around desks at headquarters in Brooklyn working impossible hours. All the field organizers who were the heart and soul of the campaign. All the advanced staff who lived out of suitcases for two years organizing and staging events across the country. 
volunteers of every age and background. More Americans volunteered more time for the 2016 campaign than for any campaign in U.S. history. My team was full of dedicated people who left families and friends to move someplace new, knock on doors, make phone calls, recruit volunteers, and persuade voters. They worked intensely while juggling relationships, welcoming newborn babies, and handling other family obligations. Two of my young communications aides, Jesse Ferguson and Tyrone Gale, kept working through difficult cancer treatments, never losing their devotion to the campaign or their senses of humor. Some of my favorite moments out on the trail were when a volunteer would come up to me as I shook hands on a rope line after a rally. They'd whisper in my ear about what a great job our local organizer was doing or how welcoming our staff was to people who wanted to help and how their enthusiasm was infectious. That always made my day. The fact that so many of these young people have decided to stay in politics and keep up the fight despite our loss makes me very happy and proud. Having said all that, of course the campaign didn't go as planned. I ended up falling into many of the pitfalls I had worried about and tried to avoid from the start. Some of that was my own doing, but a lot of it was due to forces beyond my control. Despite my intention to run like a scrappy challenger, I became the inevitable front runner before I shook my first hand or gave my first speech just by virtue of sky-high expectations. The controversy over my emails quickly cast a shadow over our efforts and threw us into a defensive crouch from which we never fully recovered. You can hear plenty more about that later in this book. But suffice to say that one boneheaded mistake turned into a campaign-defining and destroying scandal thanks to a toxic mix of partisan opportunism, interagency turf battles, a rash FBI director, my own inability to explain the whole mess in a way people could understand, and media coverage that by its very volume told the voters this was by far the most important issue of the campaign. Most people couldn't explain what it was really all about or how the allegations that I was a threat to national security squared with the support I had from respected military and civilian national security experts, including Republicans and independents but they understandably came away with the impression I had done a big, bad thing. One result was that right away, I was back in my usual adversarial relationship with the press, clamming up and trying to avoid gotcha interviews at a time when I needed to be reintroducing myself to the country. I watched my approval numbers drop and my disapproval and distrust numbers rise as my message about all the things I wanted to do as president was blocked or overwhelmed. There were other disappointments as well. In 2008, critics had slammed me for not being accessible to voters and avoiding traditional grip-and-grin campaigning. This time, they went the other way and ridiculed my intimate listening sessions. Where are the rallies? Why can't she draw a crowd, they'd ask. That enthusiasm question never really went away, even when we drew large crowds. Other than Iowa and Nevada, where we built extensive organizations, I struggled in caucuses just as I had the last time. By their structure and rules, caucuses favor the most committed activists who are willing to spend long hours waiting to be counted. That gave the advantage to the insurgent left-wing candidacy of Bernie Sanders. 
My advantage came in primaries, which have secret ballots and all-day voting, like a typical election, and much higher turnout. The difference was most clear in Washington State, which held both a caucus and a primary. Bernie won the caucus in March, and I won the primary in May, in which three times as many people voted. Unfortunately, most of the delegates were awarded based on the caucus. Ultimately, none of this mattered much after I built up a large delegate lead in March. What did matter, and had a lasting impact, was that Bernie's presence in the race meant that I had less space and credibility to run the kind of feisty progressive campaign that had helped me win Ohio and Pennsylvania in 2008. One piece of advice that President Obama gave me throughout the campaign was that we needed more message discipline, and he was right. In 1992, Bill relied on James Carville and Paul Begala to help him shape his winning message, and they made sure that everyone in the campaign, including the candidate, stuck to it day after day after day. In 2016, my campaign was blessed with many brilliant strategists, and they helped me develop a message, Stronger Together, that reflected my values and vision and a clear contrast with Trump. It may not have been catchy enough to break through the wall of negative coverage about emails, maybe nothing could, but it was the case I wanted to make. And when voters got a chance to hear from me directly at the convention and in the debates, polls showed they liked what they heard. It's true, though, that we struggled to stay on message. My advisors had to deal with a candidate, me, who often wanted something new to say as opposed to just repeating the same stump speech over and over. In addition, more than in any race I can remember, we were constantly buffeted by events, from the email controversy to WikiLeaks to mass shootings and terrorist attacks. There was no such thing as a normal day, and the press didn't cover normal campaign speeches. What they were interested in was a steady diet of conflict and scandal. As a result, when it came to driving a consistent message, we were fighting an uphill battle. Add all this together, and I think you get a picture of a campaign that had both great strengths and real weaknesses, just like every campaign in history. There are important lessons to learn from what we got right and what we got wrong, but I totally reject the notion that it was an unusually flawed or dysfunctional campaign. That's just wrong. My team battled serious headwinds to win the popular vote, and if not for the dramatic intervention of the FBI director in the final days, I believe that in spite of everything, we would have won the White House. I've been criticized harshly by political pundits for saying that, and even some of my supporters have said they agree with me, but I shouldn't say it. If you feel this way, I hope you'll keep going and give my response a fair hearing.